Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome my friend, Akil Bello, to the guest chair today as we discuss the standardized testing problem. Akil is an educator, entrepreneur, and testing expert who has worked at every level of the supplemental education industry, advising universities, launching multiple companies, developing dozens of admissions and test preparation programs, training hundreds of instructors, and helping thousands of students achieve success on every test from the APGAR to the LSAT. He has been featured on MSNBC and Yahoo News, and in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Forbes Magazine, to name a few. Mr. Kill Bello, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thanks for having me. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. I believe that the PSU project is important to myself and other students for a plethora of reasons. I've often struggled in, in certain organizations where I was tolerated but not celebrated. And I met so many amazing people, successful people, Native American, Latino, African American, and they were all interested in the same thing. The PhD project provides kind of like a resource, a platform for us to collectively come together on this journey. That's one of the reasons I love the PhD project because of the consistent support they give to all of us. Diversity Matters is back with a brand new season. Akil, thanks so much for being our season three premiere guest and huge shout out to the PhD Project for sponsoring this episode. I first met Akil in 2007 when I attended the November PhD Project conference. I had just come off from being rejected from all 12 PhD programs I applied to, largely due to my GRE Quant score. And Akil was leading the GMAT session telling us all of the tricks of the trade that I'm happy I implemented and did much better my second time around that allowed me to get into a PhD program which I sincerely thank you for that, sir. So Akil, let's get started. Let's go. So can you share with our listeners how you got into the test prep consulting industry? Certainly. My entry into test prep was motivated by poverty and supported by nepotism. So as a poor college kid, I needed money and I was studying architecture but I wanted a part-time gig. So I went to my aunt and asked her, could she help me out? And she pointed me to the Prince Review, told me to use her name, and I got a job. And that led to a total of 17 years working with them. I like that you were so forward in terms of stating that it was nepotism. I know a lot of people won't necessarily <laughs> state that up front. So I, I like your transparency. But you talked a little bit about in your bio, you know, your own test scores, not necessarily, I mean, they weren't bad, but they weren't stellar considering a person who's in this industry. Can you talk about who you are today being someone who trains and teaches people to get their best scores and the disconnect from what you saw as the score that you were able to attain on your SATs versus you know what you can do today? Oh, absolutely. So I think one thing that isn't mentioned enough, especially from people who get good scores is there's a difference between who you are at 17 and who you are at 37. So when I was in high school, I had highly average scores, but also I did no prep going into the test at all. And adding to that, my scores were good in my school. So 
one thing that floored me was I remember my scores being really good. And then I paid $35 to College Board to look them up when I was like 40 years old and turned out that they were entirely average. <laughs> and I was surprised because my memory was like, I'm doing, I was a good test taker. It's like, yeah, nah, dude, you were a good test taker for where you were. Right. And so there's a, you know, there's a historic perception there that belies the reality. But today, you know, I've been through, through training. I've looked at probably more SATs than most people in the world. If I couldn't get a really good score today, it would be shameful. Right. And so I think that is part of the conversation, right, when we think about standardized testing, because you are you. Like, you know, obviously you've learned some skills along the way, some tricks along the way, but the essence of who you are did not change that much. So you can see the disconnect from the person and the scores that people can get. A lot of that I think you are implicating is part of just your environment that you were in and how that may have just played a role and what you ultimately, you know, were able to do on this test. So I, I think that's a big point for our listeners to think about and ponder, because even though I did get a higher score my second time around, I mean, I can tell you, like, I didn't change <laughs> that much. <laughs> my abilities did not change, right? It was just what I was able to increase on that particular one. One test that day, I took it. <laughs> it's the same kid even if the scores improve 600 points, it actually is an indictment of the test, right? To say that this person six weeks, eight weeks later has a 300 point better score. Now they're acceptable to you, whereas before they weren't. Right. They didn't learn anything <laughs> new in eight weeks. Like they're not a smarter person. It would be one thing if it was two years and you went and you studied and you learned something else. In six weeks, you are fundamentally the same person with almost the same knowledge, right? It's just your skill set on this particular tool has been improved on a tool that after you get in is entirely immaterial. And I would even go even further because I took my test a year later and, and yes, I did take some courses. I did study for the test more rigorously the second time around. But fundamentally, like, I didn't change that much in my abilities, right? It was really, I was just zeroing in on prepping for this test, right? And, and I was more skilled at taking it the second time around. And to me, I'm a big sport, I'm a big basketball fan. So to me, it's really, like, I think of it as, as if you isolated any particular part of basketball, let's say free throw shooting, would you use free throw statistics as the way to choose your NBA franchise. That's what essentially everyone who puts significant weight on the test is doing. Mm -hmm. I love that analogy. And it makes no sense. It ignores all, you can, you know, take any particular three-point contest, right? Like, it's like any of those skills contests they do during the All-Star game. Everybody knows they look pretty, but they're it's essentially irrelevant. Right. I love that analogy. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you do with the National Center for FAIR and Open Testing? Sure. So FAIR Test is an advocacy organization that advocates for more limited, more reasonable, more transparent use of standardized assessments from K through 16. Advocating for things like the opt-out movement. We were supporting the push to not administer standardized tests during a pandemic when most, like where it was easy to predict 
who wasn't going to do well on these tests? So let's spend millions of dollars to give a test to 11% of kids in some districts actually showed up for those tests mm -hmm. during a pandemic to find out, oh, wait, those most affected by the pandemic did the worst on tests and worse than they normally do, which they normally underperform on anyway. Like, <laughs> so, so a lot of the work is around trying to get away from the test the blindly test and overtly punish atmosphere that has permeated education in the No Child Left Behind era. And so one of the things that I love about you is the fact that, you know, you admit you profit from this industry being a test prep consultant, but you're also a big critic of the industry. So, you know, talk to us about your biggest issues with the, the use of standardized testing, specifically for college university admissions. I mean, for me, I don't see much of a conflict between my day job and my part-time job. <laughs> my part-time job is a test prep tutor. I charge people money to help them get better on the test. My full-time job is to help limit the use of tests. So I like to say my full-time job is to make my more lucrative part-time job go away. Right. <laughs> because the existence of my part-time job, that I can for 30 years charge people money to improve their test scores is actually an indictment on the use of these tests. Because if you can't afford my hourly rate, then you won't get a better score. Or you won't get a better score as easily, right? That tells you there's a problem with these tests. The fact that there's a $2 billion test prep industry tells you there's a problem with these tests. They aren't measuring, they aren't solely measuring knowledge, skills, and abilities they're measuring access to information, access to preparation, ability to pay either in time or money for that access. Mm -hmm. So as I spent more years learning about how to prepare people for the test, you can't help but recognize that there are problems with it. There are significant problems with the way that we're using these tests. Mm -hmm. And so... I want you to talk about some of those problems and I'm going to throw another question in there to see what you say about this. A lot of people will say, particularly in my field in organizational behavior, they will say, well, you know, it's really just cognitive ability. These tests are our cognitive ability test and we can measure that with a high degree of validity. What would you say to those people who would say that in this field specifically? One, I would say... I challenge you to go take the test proctored and post your scores publicly. That's the starting point. If you love the test, take it, post your scores publicly. All right. And if you don't score higher than the average score for teenagers as an adult with a PhD or whatever advanced degree you have, you have to quit your job. So let's put the same pressure on adults that you put on kids and let's see how you perform. And then come back to me with its cognitive ability. Well, so what if they say, well, I did take the test. Like I took it as a senior in high school and I took the GREs and GMATs to get into my program. And I did score X, Y, and Z. Good. Let's put some <laughs> pressure on it. Go ahead and do it publicly and post your scores. I'm like, that's all. Like, like, I don't want to hear about what you did. Go ahead and do it now. Because part of it is, if it were testing cognitive ability, it's unquestioned that one can say someone who's been through multiple years of education who's in these fields should have more quote unquote cognitive ability, knowledge, whatever, than your average high school student. Great. So then you guys should unquestionably get, you know, PhD should get 800, no question. But we know that ain't going to be what happens. 
Also, every time I challenge adults to take the test, they go, what? No. As if I've just asked them to cut <laughs> off their hand. Like, 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 so all these adults are thinking it's unreasonable to ask them to take the test that they're demanding of students. That also makes me laugh. So one issue is, I don't think it's representative Like, of, I think that there are things that are tested on these tests. It is a muddled signal, a muddled measure of preparedness, knowledge, all of those sort of things. There are far too many other things that are influencing what test outcomes tell us. Cognitive ability, cognitive whatever, is I think a vague catch term that basically is a, is a fancy way to say smartness or like they're trying to hide just saying, oh, we think if you do well, you're smart. And they're trying to couch it in seemingly pseudo-technical terms so that they don't have to be transparent about it. I'll tell you now what the test measures. Test measures performance under pressure, performance under intense time pressure, influenced by some sampling of the things you've learned K-12. I'm sorry, really K-10. It's a sampling of the things that you've studied that you have to deliver under a highly pressurized, time-intensive environment. So what influences your performance most? The time pressure, the time and the pressure, because those are separate things, right? There's time pressure, and then there's sort of societal pressure of, if you don't do well, life is over, right? Right. Stereotype threat as well. Right. So what's influencing your performance the most? Those secondary elements or your actual knowledge and abilities. And the test isn't decoupling those things. So let's take it even further post high school and, and really get into the graduate programs now. So like the LSATs, the GREs, GMATs, MCATs, things like that. Would you say that argument continues to that point as well? All highly speeded, high pressure, high stakes, standardized tests have that in common in that there is a a signal-to-noise ratio, which is unclear at best. And I would argue there's more noise than signal for many constituencies. They are absolutely testing some knowledge, skills, and abilities. But there are all the secondary things that play a role that influence that. One of the, my favorite things to do with audiences I did at the PhD project is I give them five seconds to answer questions, right? And so I'll throw out a question, like my favorite question, which it's hard to do on something like this, was like, all right, everybody think about your answer as you're listening to this. Does England have a 4th of July? Five seconds. Answer now quickly, 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 quickly. Yes. Most people end up thinking no. Most people end up saying <laughs> no, right? Because when I put you under time pressure, you start to make random associations and answer before you think it through perfectly. And so almost like probably like 60% of the people I ask that question say no until they reconsider briefly and they go, oh yeah, yes, it does. So are you not smart because you get that question wrong? What does it truly demonstrate about your ability to demonstrate that I'm able to put pressure on you and then fool you? How much of that you fall for highly influences your score. Speaking about your challenge, you probably are aware and heard Malcolm Gladwell's episode that he talked about standardized testing, and, yep. and he did take the LSAT. 
but he's also very critical of the test as well. Just didn't know if, if you did listen to the episode. If so, what were your thoughts after listening to it? I was in the office where he recorded it, and I know the tutor he talked to. <laughs> so okay. I did hear that. And I think his, his point on the LSAT is really is solid. It is using speed chess to say whether you're good at chess or not. The grandmasters don't play speed chess. Most people probably don't play speed chess, but we've somehow decided that speed chess means readiness for college. I mean, there is skill to it, but I don't really know what it means. So let's talk a little bit more because I think there's a lot of issues with these tests, but one of the most salient issues is the difference between, you know, racial, ethnic, and gender group differences on the test. What do you say about these type of differences, outcome differences that we see on the test and, and how it relates to uh, really like inequality in our society? I think there's several complex issues that those point out. The test takers want you to focus on there's an element of reflection of societal biases in the outcomes of the test. That is unquestionably true. There is absolutely a reflection of... so. And the test takers want to take that one. The test makers and the test lovers want to take that one step further. Don't blame the test. It's society's fault. So they want to free themselves from all responsibility or blame. What I also like to point out is the test exacerbate those distinctions by creating another complex system which has to be navigated. And every complex system you create disadvantages those with the least access to information and resources. So the test doesn't simply reflect societal biases, it enhances them. It doubles down on them. And then you can throw in racial and gender and every other bias you want to, the test doubles down on them. I mean, just think about simple things like, okay, if we want to make the test better, let's just have all authors of color in the reading comprehension section. Since the topic of the passage doesn't matter, let's just only choose authors of color. Can you imagine the uproar that would exist if we actually, like, if that became a possibility? Right? It's like, why? I thought it didn't matter. But kids of color have to read all these white authors and get maybe one passage thrown at them by, written by an author. Like, what if we flipped it? Imagine the uproar that would ensue. Right? So there's all these different biases that potentially they could solve for, but they probably don't want to because the outcomes advantage those who are already in power. The outcomes from almost all of these tests advantage wealthy white males from college-educated parents. So you are known, and I'm just going to give you credit for it. I don't know if you were the inventor of the term, but you're known for calling these elite, highly selective schools like Harvard and Stanford highly rejective, which I like that term. So explain why you use this language and why this new framing is important to you. Well, I think one of the biggest problems that we have in education is conflating historical advantage and wealth with educational quality. So just like your casual use right now of the word elite, I never use the word elite because it gives, it yields the position of power and respect to these institutions. People are up in arms that I, and I did invent the term highly rejective, right? But like, it's funny because like, 
if you don't admit, i.e. reject, 95% of your applicants, how do you get to be called highly selective? I can call you that if I want to yield respect and authority to you. Or we can simply describe you accurately. You reject 95% of your applicants. That would make you highly rejective. I've seen people say I was bullying the schools. I'm bullying the place with a billion dollar endowment with my tweet. <laughs> like, right, right. It's like, whatever. You are highly rejected. I'm going to call you what you are. And part of that is taking down the elitism associated with these institutions. Part of that is making people rethink about, does that number actually matter to you? How invested should you be? in the possibility of getting into a place that is going to say no to over 90% of the people who apply there. So if you want to apply, great. Let's just accept it's highly rejective. So your odds of getting in are fairly low just from Jump Street. Let's just, and if you're good with that, cool. Let's not post videos online about your sadness that you didn't get in to the place that we all fully expected you not to get into. To your point, what if someone says, you know, so what if you didn't get into your top choice or this highly rejected school, you know, because of your Tesco or whatever, there are so many great schools in the United States. Why should the general public care about this? What would you say to them? Oh, they shouldn't care. I think that the standards of the world command far too much attention and far too much brand recognition. I think that far too much of the attention that these places receive is the country club effect. It's the exclusion that creates the aura of, ooh, we want to join. And I think that that's the problem. I would never join a country club. You got rules for what I wear in the dining. Like, kiss my butt. I'm not joining no country <laughs> club. <laughs> like, 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 no. And any place that creates the aura of their value around their exclusion and country clubness is a place that I'm personally not a huge fan of. Now, if we change that conversation and talk about the education provided, that's a whole different conversation. But far too often, the conversation about these spaces is really about the brand of the place and not about the education received. And for educational institutions, I would think the leading conversation should be the education received, not the aura and the brand created by the wealth that it has accumulated. That's a great point. And I'm not as far as you <laughs> along the <laughs> anti-country club. I, I am a part of some great organizations that are exclusive, but um, <laughs> but I do want to bring back Malcolm Gladwell's podcast because he talked about University of Toronto, which is by many in the field considered a really great institution of higher learning. But the vast difference, right, between the number of students they admit into this institution versus in the United States, the small numbers of students that we admit to these institutions will say the, the best institutions of higher learning. And I think it's important for us in the United States to realize the difference between other countries and how they do admissions into college and things like that. Not to say that there are not bad countries out there as well. They do bad things as well. But there are countries that do things differently and they are able to educate a much larger populace. Correct. And I actually think within the United States, we have those differences as well. If we take Baruch College, right, part of CUNY, their admission rate is fairly low. It's almost the same as Barnard. So you're talking about places that admit like 30, 40% of their applicants. But Baruch doesn't 
exude and double down on elitism. Baruch has a low admissions rate because basically every public school student in New York applies to Baruch, like, and they can't take them all. Baruch has a 30% rate because the CUNY application allows you to check off six schools and Baruch is always one of the six. That to me is not a highly rejective institution. That's an institution that's highly in demand because of what it offers. And I think that there's a distinction there. And that's why I think about like the country club effect, right? Because it's not just that you charge for admission and you're selective and this and that. It's also that you do all you can to reproduce an aura that says we won't sell to everyone. I will push back a little bit on your point about the general public shouldn't care, right? And I would say that I think we should care because we also know that there's opportunity hoarding, there's a disproportionate amount of resources and access and power that are just situated in certain places. And so, you know, the general public should care because those things just exacerbate the lived experiences of so many other people. Let me clarify that slightly. They shouldn't buy into the equating of brand and popularity with quality of education. Now, I'm not saying don't apply. I'm not saying don't go there. I'm just saying, let's stop calling it elite. Let's stop calling it highly selective. Let's stop calling it top college. Let's start to recognize these things for what they are, right? I also think that depending on the institution, the way they double down on the opportunity hoarding and the elitism is different. I think MIT is very different than the Ivy League. MIT is basically like, we want the nerdiest of the nerdy. So their exclusion is around a particular type of person who fits the profile that they're looking for. And I think that that's fine. That's what it is. Like, I would like more places to define who they are and say, we want to know that you're one of us. I would never go to, apply to, or get into MIT. I'm not interested in doing math in my sleep. And MIT effectively says, our brand is, we want the kids who, who want to be, what was that Matt Damon movie, the kid who walked in the hallway, he was the janitor, he stopped in the hallway to do the math theorem. It's like, yeah, I'm never really going to do that. I might stop in the hallway to mess up the math theorem <laughs> so that it's wrong for the next person. <laughs> but, I'm like, but I'm not going to be the one to stop and try to actually solve it. right? So I think that that's a particular type of educational value and value proposition that that institution offers, which isn't the same. Like, what is Harvard good at? What kind of person do they want? Rich. <laughs> so I think that there's a different aura created. Right. You and I both have great friends at all of these great institutions. So I think right. the important point we're trying to make is it's not that a great education cannot be had at these institutions. It's just we need to recognize the great educations that are also being had at other institutions. And that's the difference between the status, the elitism, and, and the outsized societal impact and effects that a small number of people get to have who happen to get into these places versus the millions of other people who are also at these fine, great institutions getting wonderful educations who are just simply locked out because, like, there are certain jobs, certain schools, they're just not going to look at you because you didn't go to X, Y, Z. And so I want to make it clear to our listeners that this is the conversation that we're having and why it's so important to all of us. And I think one of the important parts, especially coming from sort of where you are and the, the connection between business and education, 
right, is how do we convince corporations to not play into this? How do we convince corporations to look more broadly at the great educational experiences that are happening elsewhere? Well, we also have to look inward. We have to also convince higher education, <laughs> my own right. field, <laughs> to not play into this as well. Exactly. Those of you who are just hearing his voice, you probably already know his face as well, because you probably saw him uh, on the Netflix documentary, Operation Varsity Blues. Akil was an expert contributor in that documentary that highlighted these highly rejective college admissions scan that went on. So help us understand why and how something like this can occur. Because America? I mean, I think that's, that's all the explanation we need. Capitalism and America. It's, to me, the entire scam is interesting, right? Because you have families who have a disposable X hundreds of thousands of dollars. This was money available for bribes. So this is disposable income that was somehow, rather than giving it to the child to invest or giving it to them in a trust fund, it was worth spending this money to get this particular university sticker on the back of your car, right? To get this particular degree on your child's office wall. I don't... I don't understand it because it's beyond any education or career opportunity it provides. So Varsity Blues, it's, I think it's representative of where we've reached in higher education, and it's part of the problem. Every single day, families are doing variations of Varsity Blues on different scales. Test prep is Varsity Blues light. You've paid me several thousand dollars to tutor your child. Yeah, I didn't take the test for them. It's not quite, it's not illegal, but it is applying wealth to take down barriers that other people can't do. There are multiple industries that exist solely to help those who can afford it gain access to different institutions. This is simply that same concept taken to an illegal level. That's an interesting take on it. I would not have initially looked at that as the same, but I liked how you explained it. And so I'm going to deviate just a little bit because I want to follow that thought to see, do you think similarly with respect to, say, you know, certification tests or things like that. And it's fine if you don't. I'm just curious as, as your thoughts. So, you know, say assurance certification of project management certification and, you know, all these type of certification that people take tests for and people prepare for those tests by doing test prep and buying books and all those type of things. Would you apply the same lens or that's completely different to you in your eyes? I think those are different, right? Because certification tests generally don't have the same stakes they aren't time constrained in the same way in terms of like, you can take it this year or in four years. Whereas access to higher education generally has, especially for college education, generally kind of has a smaller window. So there's greater pressure. So there's less, that's why certification tests, you, you don't find people charging hundreds of dollars an hour to prepare anybody for it. Because there's just not the stakes there. Right now, not to say that there aren't problems in that industry, but I think that if you were to rank these things that's way down the pole, way down the list of problematic testing usages. Gotcha. 
So as you well know, you know, due to COVID-19 pandemic, you know, a lot of places, a lot of universities, they were forced to just, you know, rely on other criteria to admit students uh, besides standardized tests. Some have decided to ditch the test altogether. Others have decided to go test optional. Some are thinking to bring it back. Some have already brought these standards back. So can you talk to us a little bit about the places that have done the variety of any of these and your assessment of how it would impact the higher, lands- higher education landscape going forward? So I think the the range of policies that we want to look at, you know, just giving specific examples, University of California and California State University are test-free. They will not consider test in the admissions process. Then you have sort of a largest group of schools. There's about 65 schools with a test-free policy. And to clarify, that's just undergrad, right? Not the graduate level. Right? Undergraduate, right. correct. Correct. There's also some some momentum for that as well in the graduate level, but let's just look at undergrad for now and just assume that these policies are reflective on the graduate level with a little bit of a wider range in terms of what schools are doing and what the distribution of policies are. But the major policies are test-free and then test-optional, which is what most undergraduate institutions are doing these days. You know, we're talking about of the 2,300 four-year degree granting institutions, maybe about 1,800 of them or so. Like, So we're looking at, looking at about 80% have some sort of test optional policy, whether it is test-free entirely or test optional, in which case they will look at test scores if you choose to submit them. And that's what a lot of schools are doing, They're, which essentially turns the onus onto the applicant to decide whether the test score is a good number or not. That is a little bit of a less clear policy, but I think it does give a lot of strength and agency to an applicant. And then there's still some institutions that require the test. You know, notably, Florida public institutions require the test largely due to political pressure. Florida, gone Florida, no matter what. Right, right. Right. So, So that's what we're looking at these days in terms of what those policies are. I think the impact overall, I think, gives more agencies to students. So those who are up in arms around, oh my God, they're not requiring the test. So what, right? If a test taker is a really good test taker, they can submit them at most places. If they're not a good test taker, they can withhold it. But this is actually consistent with how we've done admissions forever. AP exams are optional. Extracurriculars are optional. There are lots of things, you know, essays are optional at many institutions. So Making it optional or not considering it, to me, puts the test on a level that is probably where it, where it belongs. The argument for the test is that it's an objective measure, and that's not quite true. There's, there's far more research that says it's not quite as objective as we say, because it requires prep, it requires access to information, it requires all of these things. So you know what? Let's treat it as we've treated other non-objective things. And if you want to send it, send it. If you don't, don't. Some institutions will look at it, others won't. That is consistent with the way higher education works in the United States. There are differences around institutions depending on the populations they serve, depending on what data they value and which data they don't. So you you started talking about it, but as we come to a close, I want you to leave our listeners with some more nuggets of what you think we should do in higher education to make admissions more equitable. If you can, both on the undergraduate, say some things that you would say, and then some at the graduate level as well, because... These are distinct populations, but I, th- I think it is important from a society standpoint that we do look at both of, both entryways into higher education. So 
I mean, that's a that's a big question. Yeah. Right? <laughs> if I could answer it simply, it would be interrogate your policies for historic bias. Are the policies and the requirements of my admissions process those that advantage students with wealth and access? And is it actually a necessary component of the process that helps select the most prepared students? And I would argue that in most cases, these policies aren't. Legacy admissions is problematic. How about we just get rid of that? Why would you continue to reward those you've already given generational advantage to? You know, so in, in graduate admissions, publication, valuing publication in certain journals, which are known to have biases towards elitism, which institution you went to and whether you'll get published or not, is doubling down on elitism and exclusionary and exclusionism. So I think that what we need to do to improve this is to interrogate the policies, remove barriers that are simply barriers, simply barriers erected to weed out the unwashed masses. And that's often what it is. There was the great quote from the president of the University of Chicago, I think it was, after World War II. He was basically, he said he wanted to make sure that his university didn't become, what was it, a hobo jungle of education or something. I have to find a quote. But it's like, and there's this overwhelming, consistent theme of, oh my God, we have to keep out the unwashed masses. And they create policies that dress that up nicely. Like, like extracurricular activities. Why does it matter your extracurricular activities to your performance in the classroom? Oh, because you want to make sure that everyone you admit can hang out with the polo club kids. That's problematic. So thank you so much, Akil, for joining me in the guest chair today. You've given our listeners a lot to think about around this entire industry of standardized testing. I wish you continued success in all of your future endeavors, and I sincerely thank you for the work that you do to help people like me who understand that the system we live in is deeply flawed, yet we still have to compete and live in this deeply flawed <laughs> system by doing the best we can. And so I really, really do appreciate you, sir, for joining us and dropping these nuggets of wisdom with us. Thank you for having me, sir. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, The PhD Project. Please support their mission by donating to the PhD project. And if you're interested in a PhD in business, you can find more information on their website by visiting www.phdproject.org. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Mary. Until next time, peace and love.